This is Coda Radio, episode 208 for June 6th, 2016. everyone, and welcome to Coder Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and related technologies. This episode is brought to you by our two fine sponsors, DigitalOcean and Linux Academy. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this year's show goes on. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our precariously perched and perpetually deadlined Mr. Michael Dominic. Hello, Michael! Hello, Mr. Fisher. Hello, sir. You know, I don't know if you started a trend... But one of the stories we're going to get to today uh, <laughs> in the show notes is using Jar Jar Binks artwork to uh, illustrate its point. And uh, I don't know. I think you started that because, I mean, let's let's be honest. We've been going for four years. and that's <laughs> Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on. Hold on. I just got an offer to try the new Office 365 for free for one month. I just have to touch the screen. I don't even have a touch screen. But you can't miss that. You can't miss that. Yeah. Get in there. No, I just got that. I just got that notification right as the show. Okay, now how do I get it back? Oh, I didn't touch it in time because I don't have a touch screen. Dang it. Shoot. Well, now I don't want to do the show. No. <laughs> See, you're not one of the Microsoft faithful. So anyways, we'll get to the Jar Jar Binks, uh, Jar Jar Binks story here in a little bit. You, you are... You are I could, you are typing away like a madman. I'm sorry. This is going to be a rough show. It's going to be a dual wielding show. Ooh. Yes. Yes. So you are you uh, are you like so? I mean, I noticed we've started the show a half hour later now. We you are typing right now. Are you under the gun right now? Are you project? Are you in project mode extreme right now? I'm in project mode extreme. It's one of these 48 hour. Can you do the impossible? Probably not. Oh, thanks. Yeah. yeah. Can I, can I, this is not the show topic, but can I just come up with you just for a second about, about deadlines and projects? Um, I think the word you're looking for is death march, but go on. So Sunday is the 10th anniversary of the Linux Action Show. Ah, shalom. Yeah. Hey. And uh, we are working on some things for that. Just some fun, nothing like it's going to, you know, it's just, it's something I've wanted to do for so long. And I think the audience is going to love it. And uh, it's, it's, it's a two part thing. And uh, I, uh, we've shot it all and recorded the first part. I even edit, took a first pass at editing it, but Katie and Live destroyed my my, my project. Uh, but the second part needs to be done during South Southeast Linux Fest, which is in Charlotte, North Carolina. But it needs to be shot here in the Pacific Northwest, and they're literally the two things are literally happening at the same time. And then Sunday is, is you know go live day, noon we have to go live. Uh, and and there's so there is multiple so I have to do a re-edit of the first segment. We have to shoot the second part, and we have to somehow figure out self-coordination, all going down at the same time with the tenth anniversary. Uh, it's nuts. It's it is really. And then tomorrow live uh, live coverage. You know, because then there's of course other shows on filters going on with live coverage of the primaries. It is really deadline crazy around here. So. Uh, I understand that under the gun, under the pressure thing. Are you able to uh, stay relaxed? Do you stay? Are you staying healthy? Because you've had, you know, this is kind of issues in the past. Yeah, yeah. I'm not super thrilled with this project, um, and I've made that known, which is always not a good idea. <laughs> it's, you know, I. It's it's an admirable thing to try. That's all I can say about it. Uh, but it's. <laughs> 
I actually last yes. night after after Linux Action Show, instead of doing the editing work I needed to do because I was just zapped, uh, I went home and we uh, packed up the uh, the rig and uh, went out camping for the night just to try to get a little bit of downtime. And hey, before we get into the main show, uh, I wanted to cover uh, a topic with you, just sort of a warm up topic. It's it's a, it's a horse we have kicked on this show before. Hiring a programmer, ditch the coding interview, and get back to basics. The real problem is that the entire cottage industry is built on the false pretense that coding interviews have any value whatsoever. So, before we go any further, let's establish one very simple truth. Coding interviews are worthless. And then they've got a Jar Jar Binks um, O'Reilly type cover, only it's O'Reilly with a question mark. And the uh, sub-headline is, putting a candidate through the same bullshit you went through. Useless whiteboard interviews. And it's a really nice cover with Jar Jar Binks on it. Yeah, well I'm, I'm not super sure that I buy that, actually. Whoa, uh, really? I thought of every, if anybody, you would. Because, you know, we've talked about these crazy, crazy interview processes in the past. I thought you'd be on board with this one. Blowing my mind here, Mr. Dominic. I, I, I love blowing. Where have I gone wrong? Well, I'm not sure that you're wrong. I just, you know... I I do coding interviews, right? FizzBuzz is a type of coding interview. It's true, very much. Okay, and so, is, it, so maybe you're maybe wrong. She, maybe maybe you yeah, are. I'm often wrong. <laughs> but yeah, I struggle with I struggle with cores and the same kind of crap over and over again. So I'm usually wrong. But what? Um, well, I, I know the article you're talking about. Maybe you should go on and say what he suggests instead first, and then I'll tell you. All right, you. okay, all right. I could do I could do a little dig-a-lig in here. Uh, so stop with the whining and start hiring remote workers. There's so much untapped talent that uh, does not live near your office, but you work well if you allow them to. Uh, now, these are 10 articles, he says, that we've written from the past decade or so and tried and true ideas to help you find a great programmer. Um, the person they'll become. I love betting on people with potential. When they finally get the chance to do their best work, they blossom in such a special way. Then the next one, we don't hire programmers based on puzzles, API quizzes, math riddles, or other parlor tricks. The only reliable gauge I've found for future programming success is looking at real code they've written, talking through their bigger picture issues, and, if all that is swell, trying them out for size. Ooh. Ooh, I really don't like the way that one feels. Kick the tires! Before we hire anyone, we give them a small project to chew on first. We see how they handle that project, how they communicate, how they work, etc. Working with someone as they design the code... Uh, encode a few screens will give you a ton of insight. I've heard that's how Apple does it, too. Uh, here's the top highlighted one. Wordsmith. If you're trying to decide between a few people to fill a position, always hire a better writer. doesn't matter if that person is a designer, programmer, a marketer, salesperson, or whatever. The writing skills will pay off. So uh, he goes on to sort of point these are, these are the better ways to hire. Actions, not words. Programming is all about decisions, and lots of them. Decisions are guided by your cultural vantage point, values, and ideals. Look at specific decisions made by candidates in coding, testing, and community arguments to see whether you've got a cultural match. So this would all seem to indicate the underlying message is hire and invest and wait for them to blossom. Just pick the right one based on their soul, their writing capabilities, and their mind. And then uh, let, the, let them blossom and let the rest play out. And don't try to bring them in the door and say, pass these arbitrary hoops that I had to jump through to see if you qualify for our roundtable. I think that's kind of the message here. Okay, but that seems really expensive to me. 
it seems really impractical for small business too. Right. Like that seems it's it's sort of like a it's almost like a throw something at the wall and see what sticks. And the presumption there is you got plenty of things to throw, which in this case would be money. <laughs> it really is what it comes uh, down to. I mean, of course, it's great to say give everybody a chance, be a nice guy, but. I don't know about you, but if your budget constraint isn't it important to get someone who can at least do the job to a minimum acceptable level and then kind of, you know, improve them from there. Yeah, so say I was going to hire another editor. It seems pretty reasonable for me to have them do a, a, a small editing project before I bring them on, don't you think? That's like, isn't that the equivalent of a, of a coding test is... I mean, I, I, I could ask them what, what applications they're familiar with, what techniques they know, and what they know about compressors and limiters and EQ and what they know about recording and live and all that. But they could, they could recite everything, but unless I actually see their editing. Yeah, but just – so I, I totally agree that like the pub trivia, you know, we're just going to ask you a bunch of random questions about Java list arrays is a silly way to do things. But – do you really think just kind of like – so you're, you're suggesting auditions. I mean that's what this sounds like to me. Well, he's, a, he's suggesting against them. I'm actually changing sides. I'm changing to your side because you're actually the anti you're – the, you're, the, you're, the, you're the one that makes them do the arbitrary fake uh, hard testing. I've been sort of like – Oh, yes, yes. Fizzbuzz is so hard. No, OK. Yes. Yeah. So you, See, uh, the thing is the, the test is easy, right? That's the point. The test is easy. Yeah. No, your test seems reasonable. However, I have been through the Google test, too, and they seemed unreasonable. I'm going in for a Linux sysadmin job, and they're right. quizzing me about stuff that's completely unrelated. They were asking me about all kinds of things that were unrelated. That felt really kind of – it actually put me off because I thought – I now it, it, it honestly gave me the sense that I was, I was being tested by a club of white dudes – that were sitting around a, a speakerphone. Uh, that were all uh, a bunch of bronies uh, that hung out and that thought they were the smartest shits in the room. And they were asking me a bunch of questions to see what I could come up with. And I actually kind of resented the process because it felt arrogant and it felt like um, it felt like an office space that's that's ran by the uh, classroom bullies. Only in in nerd places, it's it's generally white guys who just think they're the biggest geek in the room and that everybody has to follow their lead. And, and I, I hate being interviewed by those people, and I don't ever, ever, ever like to participate in those kinds of interviews. And I have accidentally when I was younger, and I didn't realize that's what's happening, but I was, I was one of the top server people in an IT department that you know had a security guy and a networking guy and a server guy and a desktop guy and a help desk guy. And we were those guys, and we sat around the table, and we interviewed that person on the phone, and I just – it felt – it felt like, see if you're smarter than me. Prove I'm, I want to prove to you how smart I am so you can be impressed by the group kind of a thing. And it didn't actually feel like they were getting to the bottom of what a real candidate has to offer. All right. Well, let me, let me play devil's advocate, right? The folks at Google and Facebook would say, well, we do this because, you know, A players only want to work with A players. And if you're put off, it means you're a B player. And, you know, we're sorry. We're sure you're a nice guy. but I think there is actually like some it. legitimacy to your point there. Um, and I think that's sort of why it starts. I think it's good intentions. You know, you want your A players to to do the sniff test, right, and screen out the, the right. B and C players because legitimately, 
there, I, I legitimately, the biggest tip I can give you is your A players want to play with other A players. That's a huge point. And when you make them, when you make them work with people who frustrate them, and I don't, I don't want to make this into a bigger thing than, than I'm making it sound, but when you get, when you make them work with people who are incompetent, essentially, it frustrates them and they don't do their best. But when you have two people that are really doing their best and enjoying their work and are passionate about it and really producing something and click well together, you get, you can get amazing results out of two or three people that you would, that would take an entire team otherwise, or often even better results. And so very much so you want to encourage that dynamic. You want to cultivate that dynamic because it's it's a great atmosphere to be in. That, though, so quickly can get some sort of like weird monkey um, hierarchy chain of command where you get that 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 bro like you get that programmer going and then it, it just like there's a line and you immediately cross it. I don't know. I don't know how it happens. But you go from good intentions of trying to create the A player team dynamic to now you have a groupie session where somebody's the, somebody's the top dog. You know, have you been in these positions before? They feel awful. They really feel bad. And I don't, I don't know how you prevent it from happening because a team like that is inherently protective of something great like that. So that's a tough yeah. call. I mean, I would actually uh, uh, argue that it's probably not – super common right you know uh, my experience first of all i don't i don't think i've ever met a 10x developer right this is the myth of the 10x developer oh your best developers you know what is it well literally 10x more productive than your worst right Mm -hmm. i don't know that that's true (laughs) because i don't i've never met one i'll put it to you that way and i've met literally hundreds of developers right certainly you know, and, and I tend to get this worse when I go to conferences. A lot of folks like to pay pub trivia with me, right? Just to see, oh, let's let's have a good time with me. Which there are a lot of things that I suck at. There are a lot of things that other people suck at. I have never met this mythical 10x guy who's awesome at everything. Um, maybe he exists. I mean, you know, the counter argument to to everything we're saying here is, well, you both just suck, right? Like really, you know that that is a argument. You mean us? No, I, I I have the confidence. I've worked in the industry long enough that I know I was really good at my job. I was particularly good at my job. Oh, no, I'm pretty sure I don't suck. Yeah, I mean, it, it's. <laughs> so I I, no, this, I elected after that. By the way, after that interview, I did not want both Google. I turned down jobs both at Google and Microsoft because of their interview processes, uh, and I think it was probably one of my better decisions. Maybe not financially, but. Knowing myself and those sort of situations and how much I would grow to resent that job, I think it was a good choice. So, you don't uh, want to yeah. a place that is hostile to you, right? There was something else I wanted to. Oh, just before we get off the whole interview thing, I heard a tip on Twitter the other day that I thought was actually really good. So, if you're going up for an interview and they always ask the question, Do you have any questions for us? Right? They always ask you that. Do you have any questions for us? Is there anything else you'd like to know? If you're feeling up for it, I think you ought to try, because I think this is a great idea. You ought to try asking them at that point, is there any reason you wouldn't hire me? Or something like, you know, put it in your own words. Is there anything today that is giving you concern not to hire me? Is there anything like that? And get a, di- get a dialogue going back and forth, because it shows that you're open to feedback and working with people. And I think that could go a long ways. So worth trying, perhaps. There you have it. Oh, that sounds very interesting. All right, Mr. Dominic. So I want to uh, open up 
a can of worms. Something you actually tweeted about this week, and then I saw a bunch of movement around a topic that we've been discussing for a long time. I'm, I'm really happy about the progress on this topic. So first, let's take a moment and thank DigitalOcean, sponsor right here on the Coda Radio program. In fact, it's what makes this doing this show possible. DigitalOcean is your place to go when you need to spin up some infrastructure. One of the you know we were just talking about there's that A team. Really, the whole field has changed now with services like DigitalOcean because anyone anyone has access to a tier 1 service solution. You can spin up infrastructure in less than 55 seconds. It can be a Linux or FreeBSD box with a bare bones installation with a modern current supported secure Linux or it can be a complete application stack with Docker containers or LXD containers ready to go and ready to run the code that you've just been working on. It's damn impressive. So the speed of it, I think, is unique in the sense that it allows you to iterate and destroy and iterate and try again very quickly. When I was experimenting with various different applications for the Linux Action Show, trying to find like the Rocket Chat setup that was the best way I liked it versus you know setting up the whole stack myself versus deploying a Docker image versus doing the one-click installation and then going over from Rocket Chat to Mattermost and from Mattermost to, to Matrix and doing all of these different deployments every time. And every time I got to a point where I'm like, mm, you know, in 55 seconds I can click a button and this thing goes back to exactly base setup for me with the database server, the web server, the basic Ubuntu LTS install, all of the right repos added, all of the right security updates ready to go, and I hit a button and it's back there. And it makes working on a project where you can just nuke and pave, nuke and pave, nuke and pave super fast. Plus, they have an API that makes automating all of this stuff cray-cray easy. Plus, there's a ton of good open source code already written around that API. Just use our promo code CODERDIGITAL. CODERDIGITAL, one word, lowercase, gives you a $10 credit. Now, their base rig, $5 a month. And they step it up from there. They've got some amazing deals. They've got, in fact, a brand new data center they just spun up. Plus, they have data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Germany. That really is all about that interface. New users or advanced users. Go check it out at digitalocean.com. Just please use that promo code, CoderDigital. Digitalocean.com. And thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Coder Radio program. Okay. So, Mike, I saw you tweet this link, and I was uh, legitimately surprised um, because I know it's, I thought, perhaps a topic we'd moved on. But why develop software on Linux? It's negative yes. in the freedom and I thought there's a couple of points that might be worth mentioning in here, and I wanted to bounce them off of you uh, just to see if you still agree. So uh, I would come to uh, the first one, besides the uh, your pride and openness and that stuff, I'm just going to skip over that for you. The tools. On Linux, developers and users alike are given all the tools they need to make the software they want and all the libraries they could ever want without needing to worry about software licenses and copyrights. Do you think that's essentially true? You know, I think it's true enough, right? But I think it's also true on most of their platforms. Okay, how about a treasure trove of development libraries? That's fairly true, too, but again... Again, yeah. true on almost every other platform. Okay, okay. Cross-portable compilers, languages, and libraries. Ah, now how about this one? It's becoming, like, for example, Go, Rust, Swift, all of that stuff runs on Linux. Really, pretty much everything these days runs on Linux. Linux, in some ways, is becoming like a common runtime environment. but most of it runs on Mac. Community resources. (laughs) Linux software is written by developers. For developers. 
so is almost every other software that's written for developers. Uh, okay. Okay. But they don't have to make a profit. That's good. It's about quality, not sales pitching. See? So they can focus on the little things. If you want, if you want something that already exists, that's great. If, you don't want, if it doesn't exist, you can help create it. It's all about helping each other out. Now, those two things are true. Do you think that makes a good development platform? Not particularly no. developing for linux feels like more feels like work and more like less like work and more like fun <sighs> i can tell you that that's not true i don't think any of these would be the top reasons i'd list to develop for linux right so the reason i tweeted this article was it's it's so interesting and feels very out of date in how interesting and like a little that, out of touch too a little out of touch with what has gone on on the proprietary side of the street right because you know i hate to tell you guys you won open source won but you didn't win the way you wanted to win, right? Everybody's open source now. Everybody's using open source. <laughs> really? Like yeah. ASP.NET, the newest open source framework. Even Apple is pumping out, pumping out Swift. Yeah. Even Apple is crazy, yeah. crazy. So here's the thing. Here's a couple of things that I would just would talk, say off the top of my head. Uh the fact that you can just grab it and reload without ever having to worry about licenses. The fact that you get to pick your own hardware. You're not restricted to just Macs, which means if you need, for some reason, a system with a great graphics card or you needed a computer with six processing cores, you don't have to spend $4,500. It gives you the capability to have the exact same local uh, development environment that you have on your remote server. That's like a huge one, not even mentioned in this article. And then last but not least, just for me, damn handy to have those repos, AppGit or uh, Packer or whatever, you, you know, DNF, whatever you got, to be able to just say, oh, I need this tool. And, and I, I, for me, I tap my tilde button. Uh, in fact, if you're watching, I tap my tilde button and my terminal drops down. And I type in the commands and within 10 seconds, I have the application I needed to do my job. These kinds of things make Linux great as a workstation platform. Then, on top of that, the fact that I have no strategy tax that drags me along by the balls into some sort of environment or some sort of computing paradigm or some sort of cool feature that is not really all that cool, like Cortana search being built into the start menu or a handoff that makes all of my Apple devices ring at the same time. These kinds of things I don't want, but because they're part of their overall cloud-like strategy, they keep happening in my face. Not an issue on Linux. And, and even if Ubuntu decides to go all cray-cray, I got thousands of other distros to choose from. The one sticking thing that has totally sucked for Linux as a development platform that we have talked about over and over again on this show is software delivery. Getting your software to the end users in something that either works via an app store or something that you can put up on your website for direct download and sale. This is something Mike and I have talked about a bunch on this show. And this is, I think, the weakest point for Linux right now. And that's why I'm, I'm all riled up right now because I'm super excited about Flatpak. Flatpak is... Ex- now, now, lay this on me. I've heard you talk about this before. All right. I'm, okay, so... so you, does, does XDG app at all ring a bell? No, I'm sorry. Okay. I don't listen to hip-hop. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, think, think basically uh, a common standard for sandboxed applications that allow you to deliver uh, desktop Linux apps to any distribution uh, based on a common GTK runtime. So you'll have, like, I think right now, I could be way wrong on my versions, but I think Flatpak is based on GTK uh, 3.20. I could be wrong. If anybody in the chat room knows, feel free to correct me. Uh, and so it's like you have a runtime you're writing, you, you know, for libraries you can expect on the Linux desktop, and Flatpak includes those. And it's starting to actually pick up momentum. 
Um, LibreOffice is now delivering via Flatpak. Uh, Corita is delivering via Flatpak. OpenShot is delivering via Flatpak. I just did an app pick a couple of days on the Linux Action Show that delivers via Flatpak. KDE has begun preparing and testing a version of KDE that will be uh, in a Flatpak. Chromium is being developed in a Flatpak now for by somebody else. Uh, Debian's working on it. So the idea is pretty much, regardless of distro, if you have the basic fundamentals to support Flatpaks, which is probably some GTK runtimes, i got to look more into that, um, this is a universal application download installer that is being created by core members of the GNOME community and Linux community. So it's pretty legit. And it works on, uh, like I said, a sandbox application that ships with its libraries. There's a shared runtime. And then they go through specific APIs in the operating system. It isolates apps from the host OS as well from other applications, which provides security for users and a predictable environment for developers. Some features are still at work. Uh, dependencies that aren't in a runtime can be bundled as part of the app. This makes it possible to use dependencies that aren't in a distribution and use a different version of dependencies than the one that are in a distribution. Runtimes contain the dependencies that are used by apps. They are always the same, whatever Linux distribution is being used. It means that apps no longer have to be updated to keep pace with distribution changes. So you could use Flatpak to install apps on a distribution that doesn't, you know, that's like a long-term support distribution. Works on every distro pretty much right now that people run on the desktop, including that Ubuntu. GIMP, uh, MyPaint, Inkscape have all been packaged as a flat pack already. Hmm. So why has this taken off already? Well, it's fairly new. It's been they've been developing it for about a year or two. Yeah, it's GNOME three point two uh, runtime three point two zero. So they've been developing this for for a while as XDG app, um, which was their internal you know common thing, common standard, the XDG app standard. But now they wanted to rename it to something more friendly as they got closer to wider adoption. So it is actually, considering that they really haven't made it publicly like a big thing until really about a month ago, it is actually picking up pretty fast. Um, there's another one that's, that has gotten some momentum too called App Image. Not as many people talk about it. Also, again, trying to be a universal installer. But this one, Flatpak, this one to me, because of the folks that are behind it, seems to have a little bit more viability. Because it's going to have basically the, the GNOME desktop uh, bought off, buy off on it. It's going to have the Fedora project be pretty much bought off on it. And I would imagine a few others. So seems like this is probably the way to go. Flat pack. Of course, Canonical will have Ubuntu Snaps, which accomplish something else. But yeah, Inkscape okay, so and GIMP are flat pack. Okay, so Ubuntu Snaps. Why are people not just going to use that? Because it's... You know, it's Ubuntu only because it's Ubuntu only, and I I believe the back end is proprietary, managed by Canonical servers. It's like the uh, the repo index or whatever. Uh, okay. I don't think you can run your own Snap back end server at the moment, and I don't think so. Flatpak doesn't require a back end either. Flatpak, you know, you could just they're developing it in mind to be distributed through GNOME software, the application, but they also are developing it. As, and, and how it is being mo- how it is only being distributed, as far as I know right now, is via direct downloads on the developers' websites. So it's, gotcha. in a lot of ways, it's what you download is akin to a DMG in some sense. 
Um, so they're growing Mac, basically. Well, it's a little different. Like here, I should try it right now, shouldn't I? Let's right. go, let's see. Lie. So, where did I just see a list of the? Uh, yeah, so if you go to flatpack.org, you, they have an apps page. They got a lot of stuff. Wow, wow. They got nightly gnome apps that are building, so all that's getting built. Um, they have. Let's try. Uh, let's try uh, Inkscape. I don't have Inkscape installed on this computer. Oh, that wasn't a download. Let's see if Inkscape has it listed. Let's see. I'm going to GNU slash Linux, Ubuntu, Red Hat, Fedora. I don't see an app pack. I don't see an app pack. But I will try it. I will give it. I have more testing to do. That's for sure. I'm I'm thinking this might be your answer, Mike, uh, when you come back around to the idea. Up to Linux? Not, you never come back to Linux. It's no, like you'll that. be back. It's never going away. Uh, I, I think you... Don't hurt yourself, man. It's never it's... going away. Is that what you think? It'll, it'll eventually just consume everything. You'll have to use it. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, what? What did you say? Oh, sorry. I got a little wow. carried away. Yeah, I, got got little, I got a little carried away. I'm still looking for flat packs. No flat packs around. I, now I'm on, now I'm on uh, Darktable's website looking for their flat pack. They say they have it, but then I go to their website to download it, and they don't have it listed with their... Uh, they have like some ancient, ancient Mac OS ten logo though. When it was like Leopard or something. You know, Mac has only gotten better over the years. Oh yeah, that's probably why they have that. that was the last time it was good. Good call. Oh, I see what you But I'm bump. But I'm bump. All right, Mike. So I want to just cover this story real quick, if you would. Uh, I got two takes on this uh, from from ours. Google's fair use victory is good for open source. And then the second Google's and Oracle's decision was bad for copyright and bad for software. So um, we won't go too far into this, but this is – boy, I've been getting so much shit for this. Boy, people are really – really think I've, uh, I've lost it. People think I have no idea what an API is. It's great. Uh, so why is this a victory for uh, – so this is the pro. Why this was – this is the Ars Technica article that says this is a fair use victory for uh for this this Google's fair use victory is good for open source and their argument is uh why is this a victory for the open source community as well for Google the main reason is because open source programs are often designed to interoperate with either as components or complements or substitutes for existing programs to accomplish interoperation open source developers must be able to reimplement existing program APIs in their own program code Hearst, that's the Oracle lawyer, is wrong in asserting that Google's fair use victory means that anyone can freely appropriate whatever they want from open source and other programs, which is kind of my fear. Uh, he said, goes on to say, all that the jury verdict means is that Google made fair use of Java, Java's API packages. Anyone, who, anyone else who appropriates elements from another firm's software would have to defend a legal challenge on much of the same grounds that Google did, either by claiming that the elements appropriated were not within the scope of protection of copyright law that copyright provides to software developers, or that the appropriation of those elements was indeed fair use. Okay. Did you follow? Because I, I, I kind of follow. They, he think it's they. Okay, he basically goes on to say, the developers need norms to live by, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right, right. That is the, that's the pro. That it's all good. It's all good. The Google uh, vi- verdict is a victory. Now here, just real quickly, is this is why it's bad. This is by Peter Bright, also at Ars Technica, and uh, he goes on, and I this this I don't know. I'll let you. Oh, where's my? Oh, jeez. 
Oh, jeez. Where's my highlights up in this biz? Hold on. I got to pull up my highlights. You got a loud chair today over there, Mr. Dominic. Uh, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm, I don't have the best setup today. It's okay. It's okay. It's kind of like uh, it's kind of like we're in the room with you a little bit. Okay, so here I, now I'm, pull, I'm pulling up my. Uh, I got to get my highlighted version of this because I went through and read this whole thing, and uh, I want to share it with you guys because just a few bits I think are absolutely uh, pertinent to our conversation. So uh, here I'm. There we go. <clears throat> so, um, still no highlights. Well, that's unfortunate. I will just try to remember where it was at for you then. Uh, okay, so. Mm, yeah, here we go. I found it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep, I found it. Yes, here we go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep, here, almost, yep, oh, yes, here, yes, yes, oh, uh, so he goes on, actually, this article would be really interesting if you guys want to read the whole thing, and we'll have it linked in the show notes, because they do talk about wine, and how wine is a re-implementation of the Win32 API, uh, but we won't talk about that right now. What we're going to talk about is why this potentially is not fair use, so that's that's a fascinating one. Uh, the Google, uh, the the uh, the wine one is interesting. Also, this article goes on to also talk about Microsoft's old uh, implementation of Java, which some of you may remember the old. Ah, uh, J- Jay. Yeah, and they got in legal troubles for that. It, it covers what went down in there. So this article is great in that regard. So Google's, yeah. Let's let's take a moment and just have a brief detour onto Visual J Sharp. <laughs> yes, yes. Possibly the best programming language ever invented. Oh, Mike. So many problems were caused for me. Name, name a few. I mean, see. I'll yeah, tell you I, what the big one I, was. I only experienced the glory that was J-Sharp once. Oh, oh, really? Tell me. It just didn't work because it wasn't Java. <laughs> Though it pretended to be on TV sometimes. But I, I, I think we need to go back and, and, and Chris explain J Sharp. Like Oh what is J Sharp? The essence. Can the I tell essence. you can I tell you how I had to deal with it? Because no. this for me, because I didn't I didn't work on it from a development standpoint. I had to work on it from the standpoint of supporting the applications that were created by it and the constant confusion created by two different Java runtimes, the the Sun one and the Microsoft one, both which were needed depending on the work task and having to help the user sort out which one that was. And sometimes trying to do the trick of one JVM in IE and one JVM in a different browser or something like that. Uh, and the constant, constant patching of the two individually needed for juggling security updates in an era when we didn't have streamlined remote updating with great package management and uh, Windows update was really super rough and super bad. Like, it was honestly one of the worst pieces of software. And at the time, the common, the common conception, I don't know if it was right or if it was just rumor, but the common word in the industry was Microsoft was intentionally screwing this up to just make the industry move away from Java. Do you remember those rumors? Do you remember I, the the whole potential, like, are they doing this bad on purpose discussion? Uh, yeah, I can't imagine that was ever true, though, right? Like, why? Why would they do that? Well, I don't know. Maybe they move, Maybe because they were developing uh, .NET at the same time. Uh, so let's talk about So back onto this. Um, you know, I realized what went wrong with my, uh, while we were talking there, I realized what went wrong is they've changed part of the article. Uh, so that's kind of that's kind of went that's wrong. That's sneaky. I don't like that one. Yeah. 
Uh, so uh, th- there are lots of fair uses for APIs. I don't think anybody's going to agree to that because that's just how it has to work. You have to be able to interoperate them. Uh, asserting that APIs are protected by copyright will not do anything to hinder the primary form of API usage. None of it is dependent on creating new implementations of existing APIs. The entire point of an API in these situations is to take advantage of, a, of an implementation that already exists. So that's not what we're arguing here. Google could have developed its own API for Android. Full stop. Google could have developed its own API for Android. After all, that's exactly what Microsoft did for its .NET. And, by the way, what Google itself has done with its Go programming language, which it developed in 2007, which has its own API framework. But developing a good, rich API is difficult to do. And the Java API, like C or C++ and .NET and the Win32 APIs, represents years of decision-making and creativity. And also problem-solving. Uh, so where Apple was making developers for its platform learn Objective-C and various APIs, language frameworks that were unknown to most developers, then they released the iPhone, and boom, now it made all kinds of sense. Google needed to hit the ground running like this, too. They wanted to give Android developers a head start. Copying from Java was simply easier and much faster. It was a competitive shortcut, which their own emails document. So though Android shares important elements, and this right here is the key paragraph, I believe. Though Android shares important elements with Java, Android is not a Java platform. It does not pass the test that Sun and Oracle developed, and it is not designed to do so. Google deliberately chose to reject elements of Java's design that it didn't like, leaving a hodgepodge that is Java in some places and not Java in others. The lack of interest in interoperability... In this author's view, means that Google's use of the Java APIs does not qualify as fair use. The lack of interest. Yes, because they built something different. The lack of interest in interoperability means, in his view, that's not fair use. He goes on to say that fundamentally, copyright is not a great match for software APIs to begin with. Uh, And this weakness, in turn, leads many developers to seek multiple protections for their software. Copyright, patents, trade secrets, all in an effort to cover their bases. This is a circle of problems. These other systems also make poor fit for software, like copyright, like patents, like trade secrets. And and it results in heavy-handed tactics and inadequate uh, protection and inadequate giving uh, rights to holders that wanted. It's a it's a sucky system. And there's no easy, effective way to protect the contributions in ways that matter to developers. Yes. So the, his argument is that it wasn't fair use. So you got one person that's saying that's good, it's good. Another person saying, yeah, but it's not fair use. I think it's uh, I think it's a really fascinating and boy, it is the the bulk of the audience thinks I'm real dumb on this one. And I, I don't understand. I, to me, it seems seems like this is far from over, too. So I don't even understand well, why we're I mean, drawing battle lines. This is going to get appealed all the way, right? And this is going to be it's going to be pretty ridiculous. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, so I, I'm secretly plotting to get you to move out to the West Coast. Did you know that? Did you no, have? Never oh, uh huh. Well, my idea is to let you uh, burn yourself out, and then you'll you'll want to yeah. come over and bask in the beauty of the Pacific Northwest. And I got a job lined up for you when you get here. You ready for it? I'll tell you about it here in a moment. First, I'm going to tell you about Linux Wait, Academy. Oh, man. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> oh, don't worry. It's great. LinuxAcademy.com slash coders. That's where you go to support this show. LinuxAcademy.com slash coders. That's where you go to save yourself some cash on a great service that's constantly improving 
even the back catalog, constantly improving new courseware all the time. They have great self-paced courses, 2,466 videos where you can obtain experience, downloadable comprehensive study guides, scenario-based labs that put you in the middle of common tasks. This is a really advanced platform all about training you the different technologies around Linux and Linux core technologies itself. itself. Instructor mentoring, you guys. Big, big, because these topics are not like Photoshop and After Effects and Final Cut. And honestly, even any other topic in the technology industry where there's literally millions of people online that can, do, that can help you with over a Hangout or something. If these topics require rich experience in the field. That's why Linux Academy came together with developers, educators, real sysadmins, writers. They all came together and they created this platform, linuxacademy.com slash coders. I love the graded server exercises, especially because I kind of suck at taking tests. They have the best courseware on Red Hat, Android development, OpenStack, Python, Ruby, PHP. Those Amazon Web Services are a beast. I poke at them from time to time just after I do a little deep diving over at Linux Academy. They also have nuggets if you want to just do a quick or sometimes even in-depth, but it's a singular topic. They have availability planners if you're real busy. So even when you get busy, you can still get value out of your Linux Academy subscription. They have live events where you can ask people questions in real time and hang out with a community packed full of Jupyter Broadcasting members. Practice exams, detailed notes, comes with your own server, 7-plus distros, the courseware, and the virtual servers match it. Are you starting to get the idea? This is a crazy great platform for learning. Make yourself a little more noticeable by your employer or a little more competitive at Linux Academy. LinuxAcademy.com slash coders. The summer of learning. Thanks, Linux Academy, for sponsoring the Coder Radio program. Okay, Mike, get ready for it because it turns out the software industry for Mara Shawana is yielding very high returns. <laughs> get it? Tubular. Wow. It's, yeah. Uh, and so I did, I was like, what is this about? Well, so we got four states off of legal Wahana uh, and more than 20 with medical licenses. So Leafly, for example, offers an index of pot shops, crowdsourced information on the powers and effects of various strains and coverage of the industry as a whole. It's essentially like a freaking wine blog or beer magazine in an app. Uh, Flow Hub provides cannabis companies with seed to sale tracking platforms. Huh? How about that? What about this one? Get ready for this. There's a company called BioTrack, THC. All of them creating entire software platforms. I think it's pretty impressive. Anyways. It's kind of awesome, but also you guys are druggies. <laughs> I'm just saying you come out. You don't have to smoke it. You just come out here and uh, make money from it. You know, that's all. Just come make money. Come make, come make a few bucks. Uh, so when you come out on the West Coast, we'll get you hooked up with one of these uh, marijuana platforms. Do you suppose... Do you suppose back in the old uh, in the old days when uh, prohibition was overturned, was there jobs created? There must have been a lot of jobs created by that. Actually, I wonder if what. Yeah, I would think so for sure. Right? Yeah, or digits and stuff like that. Uh, it is interesting uh, that an industry like that essentially can come out of. This is actually I, I joke about. I joke because it's a funny topic, but what actually does strike me about it is if you watch Opportunity, it's obvious this was going to be an opportunity. Because it's a huge industry here now, and you had a whole bunch of people doing it on the black market, and so all they right. had to do was just cross their legitimate. cross their T's yeah. and dot their I's and move it legit, and they were able to hit the ground running. And they need they need software, they need IT infrastructure, and they need it to work reliably, and they need it to be super secure. And it it does strike me as all of a sudden by some laws changing here, not to get political, but by some laws changing here, the whole it, industry has been created. Yeah. It really is. It's sort of fascinating to watch it. And now it's like making billions. 
It's ridiculous. Like, I was looking at the money that's going to the Colorado schools right now, and it's some ridiculous sum of millions. Just out of nowhere. And, and this right here, this article goes on to talk about about five other companies. I was just picking a couple of fun ones, um, including ones that are creating literally entire tracking software platforms uh, for, for these different states, including hmm. one for Washington. Somebody just jumped in on this. You know, it's just it's remarkable to think of these are now these companies are multi-million dollar companies that are running these software platforms that didn't even exist two years ago. It's crazy. See, I'm, I think we I think what we should have done was we should have we should have pivoted. Mike. Oh, we are we going to pivot? Wait, should, are we... It's too late. It's too late. There's probably already a marijuana coding podcast out there. It's too late. It's probably good. We'll focus on our thing. We'll it's let them late. do that. It's too late. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. We'll work. I, 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 we'll go. We'll look for the next thing. Maybe like, uh, I don't know what. We'll, we'll watch for the next trend. Maybe it's going to be VR. We'll pivot. We'll pivot because VR is totally going to be a thing. Totally I think gonna VR be. is a great thing that doesn't matter. Hey, really one real quick thing about VR before we run, because I know you got to get back to your project. Uh, do you know? Did you notice that Google is calling their new VR mode Daydream? Sure. Okay. No, what's, what's the significance of that? Well, that's what they call the uh, screensaver mode on Android TV and Chromecast. <laughs> Excuse me. They already have a name. They call it Daydream already. They're pulling a Microsoft. Where, you know, like Microsoft had a Surface table, and then they called the tablet Surface. We're loading their name. Interesting. I Mm -hmm. I did not know that at all. Well, Mr. Dominic, I'll leave you with that wisdom. Is there anything else you want to cover on today's episode of the Coder Radio Program? No, I think we're good. All right. Well, I wish you the best of luck with the deadlines. And uh, if you do have a chance to stop by on the Tuesday on Filter Show, you're more than welcome. In the meantime, when you do come up for air, where should people find you on the Twitters? At Dominic, uh, DominicM.com. Well, good luck. Maybe you can uh, give us all an update uh, down the road when uh, the storm clears. I hope to. I hope it ever clears. And we invite you to join us live next week. (laughs) Sorry, I sneezed. The chat room says, bless you. Thanks, guys. Uh, We do this. Speaking of that chat room, we do it live over jblive.tv. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get that converted to your local time. And coderadio.reddit.com. That's where you go to submit content to the show and jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact for feedback. Don't forget, you can also watch us live on YouTube now. Hmm. See you right back here next week. <laughs>